It was uh, Napoleon Bonaparte who once said that if the great Greek philosopher Socrates were to enter a room, we would rise up and do him honour. But he said, if Jesus Christ were to enter a room, we would fall down on our knees and worship him. Why do we rise up to honour Socrates, but yet fall down upon our knees in worship to Jesus Christ? The answer to those questions will become apparent as we consider this evening the third name or the third title given to us in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Do you remember that incident in the life of the Lord when he was up in Caesarea Philippi and he turned to his disciples and he asked them two very incisive and penetrating questions. The first question was, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? You have your ear to the ground, you mix with the multitudes. What is the current opinion concerning me? They give to him a variety of different answers. Some say that you are Jeremiah, some say you are Elijah, some say you are one of the prophets. And then he turned and asked a more penetrating question. He said, but who do you say I am? That's what the public say, but who do you say I am? You've been with me about three years. You've heard my teaching. You've heard my preaching. You've seen my miracles. Now, who do you say I am? And Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Lord said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed that unto you but my Father which is in heaven. And I want to suggest to you, dear friends, this evening in the Middlesbrough, those questions the Lord asked in the first century AD are the same questions being asked in the 21st century with regard to the person of Jesus Christ. Step out into our streets, go up and down the country, and... uh, you will find, as then, a variety of different answers if you were to ask them, who is Jesus Christ? Some would say that he was a good man. Some would say he was a great teacher. 
If you were belonging to the Islamic faith, you would be told that he was one of the prophets. And then Muhammad came along, and he is the last and final prophet. But Jesus was just one of the many prophets that Allah ascends. Others, of course, would deny categorically that there was ever such a person as Jesus Christ. And it's most important that we get established in our hearts and minds this evening with regard to the person of Jesus Christ. Was he just a good man? Was he just a good preacher? Did, did he live and die and then was buried? And that's the end. Well, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that he was more than a good man. He was more than a good teacher. He was more than a good prophet. It makes very clear that he was God manifested in the flesh. Very God of very God. And I want you to listen very carefully to the message this evening. It may be a wee a bit deeper, but try and follow me as we uh, produce the evidence with regard to the deity of the Lord Jesus. Now, I don't know if you ever found yourself perhaps in a, uh, a, 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 a class of further education or even in a university and you are an undergraduate and you're listening to the professor uh, speaking and you put your hand up uh, and you're going to ask the professor a question. You've got your theory, you've got your idea you, and he says, when I, what do you want to say? You give your idea, you give your theory. Probably nine times out of ten, the old professor will say to you, that, that's very interesting, what evidence have you got? Not your suppositions, not your theories, but what is the evidence you have to prove what you've just said? And it's okay me standing here in front of you this evening. I've made the statement, Jesus Christ, very God of very God. And you have every right to say to me, Stanley, that's a tremendous statement. What's the evidence? What's the proof? And woe betide me if I couldn't bring to your attention some evidence. And that is what I'm going to do this evening in plural time. I'm going to produce four lines of evidence that proves conclusively that our Lord Jesus was God <coughs> manifested in the flesh. Here's the first one. Divine names are given to him. You can't read the New Testament without discovering time after time after time that divine names are given to him. Whether you think of the name God or the Son of God or the Lord, these are the names given to this Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, 
You have 240 different names and titles given to the Lord Jesus. And these but a few that I've mentioned. God, Son of God, Lord Jehovah. Take the one in Isaiah 9. His name shall be called the Mighty God. The word God is from the Hebrew for El, E-L, El. And it signifies the strong one, the mighty one, the first cause. So when Isaiah says his name should be called Wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the mighty El, the mighty strong one, the mighty one, the first cause. Now, if Jesus Christ is not God, then he does not deserve these names. It would would be blasphemous to ascribe these names to a mere mortal or to a mere creature if he wasn't God manifested in the flesh. So there's the first evidence. Divine names are given to him. Here's a second one. A bit more deeper. Divine attributes are possessed by him. Let me give you a few examples. Take, for example, the attribute of omniscience, which simply means all knowledge. And we saw that last Sunday when we looked at him as the counsellor. A human counsellor, be it man or a woman, is finite in knowledge. They only know a certain amount. But here, this counsellor, he knows everything there is to know about any subject you care to mention. Because he has the attribute of omniscience. Peter looked into the face of the risen Christ. And he said, Lord, thou knowest all Things, And at this moment in time, he knows what you're thinking in this very meeting. He knows the motives that motivate you. He knows absolutely everything about you. He possesses the attribute of omniscience, all knowledge. But then he also possesses the attribute of immutability. That simply means he never changes. You change, I change, the world changes, societies change, governments change. But here is someone who is the same yesterday and today and forever. He never changes. Now, there are a number of things that change you and change me, but doesn't change the Lord. Here's the obvious one. Age changes us. Whether you like it, brother or sister, you are getting old. Sorry to say that, but you can't deny it. Every day you live, you're getting old. I'm getting old. You're getting old. And uh, if you are a man and the grey hair is coming, 
you might apply the Grecian 2000s <laughs> to try and dampen it down. And uh, if you are a woman, you might apply the paint and the powder to eliminate the wrinkles. <laughs> but sooner or later, you shall succumb to the savages of time. Age changes us. As you know, I'm not Scottish. I was brought up in the city of Belfast. And I can look back upon a young fellow growing up as a Christian. And we had a very simple way of defining worldliness. If we saw Johnny going into the picture house, we would say, have you heard the latest? Johnny was seen going into see those worldly pictures. And he's worldly. He has backslidden. And if it was we, Susan, and uh, we saw Susan, and we would say, have you seen Susan recently? Have you seen the lipstick she's got on? Have you seen the cosmetics she's got on? And immediately she was tarred. She's worldly. She's wearing lipstick. And she's wearing cosmetics. And we had a wee expression for little Susan. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to pass a camel shop and call your face your own. <laughs> You see, age changes us. So, sisters, keep on the paint and the powder. I heard one preacher say, yes, an old barn door looks better even with a lick of paint. And brethren, if the grey hairs are coming, by all means, apply the Grecian 2000. Age changes us. And then, of course... Uh, Moods change us. And you wives, uh, what do you ask yourself first thing in the morning? What kind of mood is the old boy in this morning? And if you're a husband, you say, oh dear, what kind of mood is uh, she who has to be obeyed in? You see, we're subject to moods. We fluctuate like the, the dollar and the pound in the stock exchange, up and down, up and down. We're subjects to moods. Now what kind of mood are you in this evening, friends? Moods change you. Also, circumstances change you. Can you think of that wee woman brought up in the same street and road you were brought up, growing up? But somehow she got on her feet, made a wee bit of money, moved out of the wee house, moved into a big house, instead of driving the wee mini, driving the big Mercedes car. And she doesn't want to know you. She just passes you by. Why? Circumstances has changed her. Sin changes us. And many times I look into the face of men and women and I can see in them what sin has done to them in their very countenances. 
because sin is a robber of health and vitality. Sin has changed them. So there are some of the things that changes us. But our Lord Jesus, he is the eternal one. Age does not change him. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. He's been alive for nearly 2,000 years. And he's still the same wonderful Christ as he was when he was here upon earth. And he's not subject to moods. You're finding the same today as you found him yesterday. And if tomorrow you come, you'll find him just the same. He's not subject to moods. Not subject to circumstances either. Here was someone, the head that once was crowned with thorns, tonight is crowned with glory. The highest place that heaven affords is his by sovereign right. He's the centre of heaven's attraction. But tell me, dear friends, has it changed? Oh, no. He still loves you. Still loves me. And of course sin has not changed him for the simple reason he is the sinless, the spotless, the stainless Son of God. He has the attribute of immutability. He's not subject to change. And then of course uh, uh, eternality is another one of his great attributes. He is the eternal one. Now, this is something very hard to grasp. Why? For the simple reason we are used with things beginning and then ending. But here is someone who never had a beginning. You stretch your mind back to millions, billions of years away back in the dateless, ageless past. There never was a time in which he wasn't. Going the other direction into the future, whether you think of billions of years, there never shall come a time in which he shall cease to be. Here's what Psalm 90 says. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, you led the foundation of the earth, even from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. Eternity is stamped upon him. He is the eternal Son of God. My dear friends, Would these things apply to a mere mortal? Of course not. Only someone who is God can possess the attribute of omniscience and immutability and eternality. Divine attributes are possessed by him as well as divine names given to him. Here's the third evidence. Divine works are attributed to him. Let me mention one or two. Take, for example, creation. And immediately I realize I'm in immediate conflict with some of the teaching that's going about today, especially in our universities and other places. In which they say, well now, you've got to go back to 13.7 billion years. And it all started with the Big Bang. That's all started. 
13.7 billion years ago, there was a big bang, and then from that, all the planets came, the solar system, the galaxies, and it all happened. It all happened by chance. Fate. Luck. Now, that is what, sad to say, is sometimes even taught to our children in schools today. Evolution. Forget this idea of creationism. Forget this idea of being supernatural. Oh, no. It just all evolved. Charles Darwin's the origin of the species. And our God is pushed to the one side. But I'm glad to say, dear friends, as Christians, we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And what do we find? In the beginning, God <coughs> created the heavens and the earth. That is how it all started. Not a big bang all those buildings years ago. But in the beginning, God, by his mighty power, brought the universe into existence. Let me just take one or two seconds. In the beginning, God created now that's a very interesting word, created. It's the Hebrew word bara. And every time the word bara is used, it's always used in connection with God. And this is what bara literally means. It means to create something out of nothing. That's the meaning of the word bara. That you can shape things, you can form things, you can make things out of pre-existing materials. But when God was going to create the universe, he had no pre-existing materials. There was nothing. There was no sun, there was no moon, there were no galaxies, there was no universe. There was nothing but the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then God decided He's going to create something out of nothing. Doesn't that show you something of the greatness of God? Men can't do that. But God did. And you go back to John's Gospel. In the beginning was the whole August, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Listen to this verse. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. He was there, right there at the dawn of creation, with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. He created the universe out of nothing. And then, of course, preservation it's one thing to bring into existence certain things. It's another thing to keep them going. But the Bible says concerning Jesus, Hebrews 1, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Now Newton explained the, 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 the theory of, of gravitation, and we thank God for that. But ultimately it is God who holds all things together by his mighty power. Creation, preservation. But then, of course, forgiveness of sins. Listen to this. On one occasion, the Lord Jesus said to the paralytic man, 
He says, thy sins be forgiven thee. Neither old crafty Pharisees sitting by and scribes. And immediately they began to, to, to complain and to criticize. And they said, who does he think he is? Who can forgive sins but God only? And dear friends, they were, they were right. No use you come to me. For, to, for me to forgive your sin. There's no preacher can forgive sins. And it's no use going to Father O'Reilly, a priest. He can't forgive your sins. And it's no use going to the old Pope in the Vatican City. He can't forgive your sins. God has only the prerogative to forgive sins. But what the scribes and farmers didn't realize. That the one standing in front of them was God. Manifested in the flesh. Who had the prerogative to forgive that man his sins. You see, divine works are attributed to him. Creation, preservation, and even the forgiveness of sins. They tell me, would these things apply to a mere mortal? Of course not. They only apply to God. And then fourthly, now, I trust you're following this line of evidence, all biblical, all scriptural, divine names given to him, divine attributes possessed by him, divine works attributed to him. But notice this, divine worship was accepted by him, both before and after his resurrection. Now, that's interesting, and I'll tell you why. You read the Bible and you'll find that the apostles refused to be worshipped. Do you remember when, when Peter came into the household of Cornelius? And when he entered in, it says Cornelius fell down on his knees and began to worship uh, Peter, according to Luke's Gospel, according to the Acts of the Apostles, written by Dr. Luke. Now the Bible says, Peter says, man, get up, I am also a man. So he refused worship. <coughs> and you go to the book of the Revelation, you find on two occasions, John was so awestruck and captivated that he fell down to worship angels. And the angel said, see you do it not. Worship God. So apostles refuse worship, angels refuse worship, but here we find Jesus Christ accepted worship before and after his resurrection. And he did not rebuke them. He accepted the worship of the people. Would you worship a mere mortal like me? Would I worship a mere mortal like you? Of course you wouldn't. But here we find Jesus Christ accepting unreservedly the worship. Mary Magdalene, Mary at his feet, worshipping him, the Son of God. And then you remember that incident with regard to Thomas. Wasn't there when the Lord appeared to the disciples? Uh, there's a wee lesson there, friends. Over the years as a pastor, I have exhorted different congregations, try and not to miss a meeting. And I'll tell you why. You never know what's going to happen. And if you're not there, you've missed it. 
that for some reason Thomas wasn't at the meeting. And lo and behold, the meeting he missed, the Lord Jesus appeared in his resurrection power and glory and revealed himself to the disciples. And then when they met Thomas, they said, Thomas, we've got news for you. We've seen him. He appeared to us. And I just can imagine Thomas, the skeptical man. <laughs> You're carried with all this enthusiasm. Unless I can see the print of the nails in his hand. Unless I can put my hand into his, into his spirit-driven side, I will not believe. My dear friends, don't criticize Thomas. Sometimes there are many of God's people and they're too gullible. They believe anything. You mustn't do that. You must test everything. Don't believe anything I say. I'm just a preacher. Examine by the word of God. And if it's not in the Bible, but then reject it. I'm not infallible. I'm not like the Pope, you know. I don't claim infallibility. And Thomas, he was what to make sure. Now, isn't it absolutely wonderful, our blessed Lord? Sometimes he just accommodates our weaknesses. And the next time Thomas was there, <laughs> and the Lord said, Thomas, you're wanting proof? You're wanting evidence? Well, come on. Reach forth your finger into my, into my hands and put your hand into my side and be not faithless but believing. And here's what Thomas said. My Lord and my God. Oh friends, that's the only conclusion you can come to. In the light of all this evidence I brought with you, you can't come to any other conclusion that he is very God. Of very God. That you can worship, that you can serve, that you can praise, that you can adore. He is the Son of the living God. I must say, Hallelujah. What a Savior. So he's not a good man, merely. Not just a prophet, not just a great teacher, but God manifested in the flesh. You see, the Bible says, no man have seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And when our Lord was here upon earth, and this, this is very important, he says something absolutely Amazing, it blows, your, it blows your mind. He says, He that have seen me have seen the Father. So that when they looked at Jesus Christ, they were seeing the Father. No man has seen God at any time, and yet when Jesus came, He was God manifested in the flesh. What a wonderful and glorious Lord Jesus now the Lord willing next Sunday we're going to have a look at the next title the everlasting father and here's a wee theological problem to think about on the next Sunday if he is the son of God 
But then how can he be the everlasting Father? And I shall have to give you some teaching with regard to uh, the Trinity. Because we're Trinitarians, we believe in the Trinity. But let me forewarn you in advance, I will never be able to explain the Trinity. But we shall take it as far as we can. The everlasting Father. There is a distinction in the Trinity. There was an old heresy in the early church. And sad to say, it was revived way back in the early 50s when I was living in Belfast in the 60s. Known as the oneness theory. If you've heard it, maybe you haven't. In which they believed in one God. But at times he appeared as the Father. And then at times he appeared as the Son. And then other times he appeared as the Holy Spirit. One God, three manifestations. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Now, that is not what the Bible teaches. And we shall see next on the Lord willing, there are distinctions in the Trinity. God the Father is not God the Son. And God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. There are distinctions. And sometimes I hear very sincere Christians on a Sunday morning at the breaking of bread service. And they say, thank you Heavenly Father for dying for me on the cross. It wasn't the Father that died for you. Oh no. It was the Lord Jesus who died for you. Well, 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 that's what I meant. Well, why didn't you say what you meant? You see, you've got to get your, your theology clear. Because we must worship God in spirit and in truth. Because Jesus said, ye shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you, you free. So that's the menu for next Sunday. This great title, The Everlasting Father. Thank you for listening so patiently. And may the Lord bless to us his precious words.